All right. In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Cheryl Mejia, Managing Partner of Steward Asset Management. Uh, Steward is an anchor investor to emerging private equity and opportunistic asset managers targeting a Fund One launch. Cheryl, it is awesome to be talking with you today. And I want to kick off and just, if you could share a little bit about your background kind of before starting Steward in, in 2019. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for having me today. It's, it's really great to always, you know, spend time with you and your team. Uh, so I've uh, been in the uh, investment industry for more than 25 years and uh, had the pleasure of uh, working on big and small teams, uh, some of the biggest and some of the smallest. And I kind of con you can contrast uh, where you've learned more and where you've learned less. And sometimes seeing everything that goes into the cooking uh, is helpful and sometimes being in a silo uh, builds up certain muscle strengths. So, uh, but I started off at KPMG in the tax and audit department before I did my MBA at Wharton and uh, KPMG was great because we really got a baseline on you know, great operational controls which has sort of served me through the life of uh, launching and growing different emerging managers. And of course, currently as we're, we're anchoring brand new ones. Um, but uh, at the, the MBA program at Wharton was uh, less than 20% women when I was there in the 90s. And so it's much more than that today, which we're so pleased to see. Uh, and, um, but then I had a chance right afterwards, we was, I was invited to join Bankers Trust Company at a time of incredible innovation in the capital markets. And when we were defining a lot of the terms we use now, and especially in the private asset classes. And um, I worked with uh, David and Vera, who are on my team today at that time, um, alongside them in the asset management unit of Bankers Trust, which was ultimately bought by Deutsche Bank, which sort of the first lesson of, of what happens when you're, when you're a medium-sized fish and bought by a larger fish and how that goes being flexible and you know, adapting to the new culture, which I love Deutsche Bank. It was, uh, it was also continued the culture of Bankers Trust, the best of both. Um, and ultimately, uh, as I uh, rounded out a decade um, at, at Deutsche, it was time to do something entrepreneurial around the time when I had my kids. So I needed a teeny bit more flexibility. And uh, so, but it was, um, it was great. I, I did a combination of things, but ultimately culminated in Vera and, and I co-founding Decagon Advisors. Um, and it started as, as uh, one help, us helping one fund of funds, uh, KCS fund strategies, but ultimately they became the first client of Decagon. Uh, they had actually also been clients at, at Bankers Trust. So it was a continuation of the, the same team. And it, Decagon was um, an investment consulting firm at its core. And, uh, but we did the diligence on uh, managers that were smaller and nimbler that some of the large consultants uh, were uh, really equipped to cover uh, because they- um, So like were you primarily us. focusing on like uh, investment uh, investment consulting for like small buyouts or what, like, what was your specialty? So yeah, we were investment consulting to uh, pensions and fund of funds. Okay. And so we would help them with their fund allocation. So yes, I've been a fund investor primarily most of my, most of my career. And, uh, and so uh, yeah, the smaller private equity, uh, growth equity um, venture, and also many alternative strategies, distressed um, long short equity things we, we covered in that area as well. Maybe before we could dive deeper into the career, what was your first job? Oh, my first job? <laughs> my very first job? Very first job. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, because I was under 16 and I was sort of hankering to get into business, 
I, my, I convinced my mother to, or she convinced me, I don't know, some combination of that, um, to, uh, to sign up to be an Avon lady. I couldn't sign the papers myself, so she nice. signed them for me. Um, actually, today's her birthday. She's unfortunately uh, passed away many, uh, you know, about 15 years ago. But today's her birthday, so we can celebrate. <laughs> celebrate <laughs> strong mothers. So she, uh, she nudged you into becoming uh, an Avon lady. Yeah, so I think she saw that I knew most of the neighborhood already, so I was pretty social. And so she's like, okay, let's turn this into a profit and get her, you know, out of my, <laughs> out of the house. <laughs> the money. Move so, you a little bit more to the asset column as a kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if I consumed or the, I don't know if the profit margin was actually as good as I was a consumer as well. But, uh, you know, I did fun because we were in one of those neighborhoods uh, where we were expanding, you know, they were, they were building, it was a subdivision, they were building more and more houses. So I was actually one quarter, I was the most, uh, one of the highest growing uh, salespeople for Avon at the you know ripe age of 15. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, where did you grow up? Uh, Toronto, just outside of um, just outside of the Toronto area, and okay. uh, in uh, Mississauga, and so right. that was uh, that was a fun time there, and that was a growing community, and still a very vibrant, um, very vibrant area. It's actually um, just a, just a super super place to grow up, nice and calm. But you know, my mother was American, interestingly enough, and so I ended up down here in the states to do the MBA, and then continued on. Um, but Jordan, to just truly answer your question of, of the career, I mean, the, you know, the, the notable thing, the most exciting uh, thing was working for Tom DiNapoli and Vicki Fuller at New York Common. I, we haven't covered that. And so. Yeah. So, so it was uh, Bankers Trust, which was bought by Deutsche Bank, then KCS, then Decagon, which did investment consulting for right. pensions, et cetera. And then the okay. next step was uh, New York Common, and yeah, I'd love to, what were you doing at New York Common? So uh, at New York Common, I stepped into a very, very interesting role. And there's only a few of these roles in the country uh, where you're responsible for the emerging manager program. And, uh, you know, there's some notable folks in the industry who've really, really helped me step into that role in a strong way. And Sylvia Bell at Texas Teachers was very, very supportive. She'd been through a lot of the things, building a great program. Uh, Clint Stevenson was also uh, building out his program at, at CalPERS at that time. So we were in the, uh, you know, collaborating in uh, some of the build out. And so over the years I was there, we grew the emerging manager program from uh, just under 5 billion to just under 8 billion in exposure. And that's uh, it's NAV plus unfunded commitments. And uh, we really expanded its reach, extended its reach. And the, uh, Tom DiNapoli, uh, New York State's controller, is such a, a strong proponent of diversity, but also that it's going to be um, absolutely uh, in the strongest form of asset management, really bringing up the new leaders. Uh, and uh, so with uh, Vicki Fuller's help as CIO, we really found ways to understand how we'd been successful in the past and also just ex and, and extend that runway. And really, it, it created a, a focus on the private markets. Private when do you market. think that um, emerging managers as a dedicated function and segment really started to evolve um, within the pensions, endowments, and other, uh, others in the LP universe? It's interesting. I about, just about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, when 
uh, Tom DiNapoli, and at the same time, the Texas program began really focusing on realizing it was a specialty. There were special considerations yeah. in underwriting smaller and newer managers. And um, Jarvis Hollingsworth is sort of the, and, and Tom DiNapoli, I think of the, God, as the godfathers of being a leader and stepping out and really making that happen um, for in different really And then producing reporting that actually uncovered it for other people. What are, um, are there any kind of resources, either websites or particular like annual reports about emerging managers from LPs that you think could be you know, interesting and useful? There's so many resources now, uh, New America Alliance, NAIC, uh, and, uh, and, and the actual pensions uh, do a good job of putting out materials uh, and reporting. And uh, New, York, um, uh, New York Teachers uh, does a, a, an annual report, or a semi uh, every other year annual report. Well, let's dive a little more deep, uh, uh, let's dive deeper into New York Common. So you, you went from five to eight billion of allocation to emerging managers, but like how many emerging managers were you working with? And mm -hmm. like, also like, how do you define, you know, how would, how did you define, how do you define emerging manager? That's right. Like, when um, have you emerged? <laughs> when have you emerged? So I often think of emerged as hitting a billion in AUM in the private markets. And uh, generally if assets under management or asset you know, capital raised or fund size in that, in that range. And so uh, we were typically targeting fund sizes that were between 150 and 500 million fund one, twos and threes. Okay. And that is uh, a critical moment where the teams are typically taking skill sets uh, and track records from prior shops and creating their own shop. Now the, um, we had 120 managers uh, overall in the entire program, 40 were in the public markets and that we had um, allocated on a discretionary basis to some of the program partners. Um, on the private markets, we worked, that's where we worked most actively to implement uh, great governance terms as we were entering the managers. Uh, that can be a, a delta um, to new managers who are coming on. They may not know exactly the institutional terms. We always had to implement our, our own um, side letter conditions. And then uh, of course we would, um, often at times participate in their success um, like we do at Steward in the anchor program, but in a, on a, a smaller way because we were often later. We were often weren't the catalyst to their first close. We were often in the last close or in the on fund two, which yeah. is where um, the, the pension programs are, are often not, you know, more commonly seen. Uh, sometimes they can be a catalyst to fund one though. So that's, um, there's, uh, there are certain conditions, but the, uh, it was a great, uh, time to really uh, at, 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 at rigor <laughs> put at, at, and put a pace to you know, allocating to private equity uh, and opportunistic and uh, programs. In real estate, uh, we um, had more of a discretionary relationship at the time I was there with the Artemis Real Estate Partners, which we absolutely um, uh, had a super relationship with and really appreciated their underwriting approach and, and everything else they did in the industry for advocacy around uh, smaller, newer, and emerging uh, and diverse teams. You know, speaking of diverse teams, you know, out of the 100 plus emerging managers that you're working with, you know, approximately how much, how many were considered diverse? And then, you know, how do you think about diversity now with the, you know, however many managers you're, you're, you're talking with in your pipeline? Sure, it's, uh, 
Well, the, the work at New York Common laid the groundwork for our pipeline today. Uh, so at New York Common, across the entire portfolio is where I had the statistics, but we had about more than 70% of the teams were oh, more than 50% owned by women or uh, various minority groups that are defined by New York State as uh, typically Black, Hispanic, and Asian owners. And so the, uh, the, the program was um, really uh, amazing at the, at the quantity of talent we looked at. So we looked at the whole universe and really tried to put together a portfolio that uh, would be high performing. And, and, and I'm very proud of the performance we had, uh, we, we were able to realize um, there. And, um, uh, but really with more than 70% of the managers comprising diverse teams, that many of them have gone on to have two and three, $4 billion uh, fund sizes and graduated out of the program and are now uh, new leaders on the, the leaderboards as you see the rankings of the top private equity firms in the industry. So the, the importance of that function though is the ability for new entrants to help uh, mitigate some of the concentration we're seeing at the largest private equity managers that just continually doing do larger and larger deals. And the importance of, of and I, part, part of the equation of that return of that portfolio, the success there was that it was able to do smaller check sizes and smaller, those managers can do smaller deals. And it's, it's absolutely critical that capital yeah. flows to those middle market companies that are really underserved and incredible value for the growth equation. Well, I think that's a good segue into, you know, Stuart and I mean, why, why leave a job that you really liked and, <laughs> and, and are having, and you had a, you know, a, a, a tangible, significant impact on that particular part of our industry. Um, why, why leave and start an entrepreneurial venture? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I have, if I have, we all have biases. And so, uh, you know, this is part of the study of diversity and, and biases on, but I have a bias that I really like smart and remarkable people. <laughs> and so, and, and it's, it's the most exciting to be with them at the time when they're making that transition to launch. But at the same time, uh, Steward, uh, you know, just like at New York Common, we couldn't get access, uh, we couldn't get the best equation of uh, fees and reduce the fee burden of private markets at the stage with which, we, with which we were engaging with the managers. And so there's a better equation and many family offices have discovered this for the last few decades. And the institutions have sort of been late to this game, uh, not game, but you know, late to this getting access to managers at launch. And uh, because many of the uh, providers have um, conflicts and just don't focus on it. And so I don't have the dedicated bandwidth that we do at Steward. And so we really allow- The LPs don't have the bandwidth to really effectively find, assess, and participate in emerging managers? Correct. And so it really, it takes more than just understanding the limited partnership agreement or the side letter you may engage with the manager. We actually institute a lot of controls through our anchor partnership, strategic partnership agreement with the manager yeah. so that we can anticipate various outcomes of their business, and of course, be there to, as a as a strategic partner participating in their success, which helps to lower the cost of our, our investment completely. Or, you know, seeks to do that, and but more importantly, allows us to engage with the high performing teams just as they're spinning out, 
and it really extends the reach of institutions. And so we are we're um, we we prefer a commingled vehicle. We also offer SM, SMAs, but the commingled vehicle allows us to act quickly, be a competitor in the in institutionalizing anchor capital that's directed at teams that are leaving their job and looking at an uncertain future of two to four years where they may have to fundraise before they can get a first close complete. And that dissuades a lot of teams. I joke that it's easier to, to, to get capital for a non-revenue non producing, no, almost inexperienced team that's starting a technology venture in San Francisco than it is for a, a 25 year veteran team of four uh, leaving you know, a large private equity firm just to launch their own firm. Why, why is that? Why is it that the venture community has institutionalized anchor investing, seed investing, but the private equity, mar the buyout markets ha have not institutionalized seed investing, mm -hmm. anchor investing? I think it's been a nice secret the family offices have held on to for a very long time. Uh, these managers, it's, it's a little more work to underwrite them. So some of the biggest institutions that serve the largest pensions that have been the home to the emerging management programs have not uh, uh, spent as much, aren't able to spend as much time on these smaller managers. And so it does take uh, a number of new offerings. We're one of a few competitors that are in the landscape today that are uh, trying to get more out of the private equity program and also make sure uh, we, uh, uh, dive deeply into the middle market to make sure we, we're looking for yeah. great growth stories. So it's is it it's, is it needed? Like why? Um, what is the gap that is being filled? Why do we need to institutionalize this? You know, mm -hmm, if, if mm -hmm. there are is the system not working for emerging managers? Are we getting the best emerging managers? There's a the system is broken, and in that in this particular there's a gap. Uh, there's just a gap of capital. I think there's an awareness gap uh, to start with where uh, uh, it's, it's like your recycling program. Are you doing the right things to, for, you know, to make sure you correct your carbon footprint? I think there's still work to be done here. And uh, we're actually um, finding that uh, the boards that we we're presenting to and talking about our strategy uh, you know, have an aha moment like I did at New York Common when I was asking our team, can we go earlier? Can we can we get more of the economics? Can we participate as this manager grows? We've been there. If we're their first check, we have a we're more of a strategic partner. If we're a first and larger check, most importantly, can we can we be uh, a meaningful participant in that team's success? And so at Steward, we often participate in managers' carried interests, which helps offset the fees. And so it's it is uh, it's a new opportunity for especially for pensions who are very challenged uh, uh, in. Uh, in looking forward, thinking about how they're going to meet their funding requirements and not reduce their return hurdles or return expectations, which then of course um, goes straight back into the teachers and public employees that we care so much about in our communities. Uh, we don't want to uh, charge them more to uh, contributions in contributions to their pensions. We'd rather uh, make sure the pensions have equation, an equation to increase the um, increase the return profile, I use pensions as an example. Our, our yeah. investor base uh, will likely be many more uh, investor types than pensions, but it's the one I'm most acutely aware of the uh, complex accounting equation uh, around. Interesting. Um, let's pause for one second. Well, so so let's go to the the kind of the next logical question, which is like how how do you 
sort through the best emerging managers? I mean, how are you identifying the ones that are a good fit for, for what you do? Right. So Jordan, as you know, are, are, we're often the first check to uh, fund one. And so we don't have <laughs> prior funds to look to. So we are building a bridge from a prior um, from a prior set of data and positions. And often the team is, is worked together. Uh, our team sees more than 200 managers a year, over the, especially over the last year, we saw more than that. Uh, but we right now have an active pipeline around 50 managers that uh, are in some stage of review. And of course, a number with uh, term sheets right now that we're, um, we're looking to get done uh, by the end of the year. And it's, it's really proprietary sourcing. We uh, are very vocal about what we do. We're very targeted. Being solely focused is very, very helpful. Uh, they know we are one solution. We have one, uh, one page that we share with them, very transparent about how we're approaching this and how we're trying to serve our limited partners uh, needs in this equation, in this economic equation that we're just trying to solve for, uh, uh, making sure they get to market, but also making sure the limited partners uh, participate in that success that they're helping to create. And so in terms of finding teams, uh, David and I are the two that really spend the most amount of time uh, calling and screening through to make sure we're finding teams that are going to bring uh, unique expertise, uh, a, a strategy that's really opportune for the moment, and um, and uh, and just really have that have that ability to go to market uh, and make, uh, make create relationships that are going to matter for many many generations of funds. Often our role. Um, so we, out, we have an outreach. Our role is really also not just sourcing, you know, responding to inbound, but we're watching the talent pool um, in the industry and really looking for those teams that are likely to uh, uh, not have as much glue together and really make sure that some of the highly uh, qualified and, and very successful deal makers have that opportunity and it's maybe a shorter runway than the traditional three or four years to launch a firm. And we're trying to look for those teams that are looking for that strategic partnership. The nice thing is, uh, and it's very, very helpful, that our team is a diverse team and, and we look like the United Nations. And so with that, uh, I think when you're doing these very difficult, you know, very um, uh, pivotal transactions, you are looking, you know, there is an affinity bias. People, uh, deal makers like to do deals with people who look like themselves and it's very, very helpful. It's one of the ways I think the diversity on our team sort of creates an alpha in addition to um, us being able to um, uh, create, you know, create and source teams that are diverse allows us to fill the need. I think you're hitting on an interesting point, right? Which is um, it's a heuristic. It's, it's, mm -hmm. and it's outside, it's in every aspect of our lives and how we make decisions. And it's easier and it's a higher probability. Um, it, it, the heuristic is that it's a higher probability of success if I work with people who are like me in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you just have to change who look like we is. But that just came out <laughs> incorrect. I can't speak English or human today. Um, so, you know, if, if you have a team of you know, 10 white males who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, then they're, you know, the, the, the statistics show that they typically back people who look like them, who have a similar background, similar schools, similar pedigree of firms they went to. So that means you just change the teams who are doing the choosing. 
And that way it's more diverse. Um, some, you know, I know at New York Comedy, you're saying, you're saying something like 70% or so of the managers that you worked with, the 120 were, were diverse. Um, I, I mean, in your, in your pipeline of 50, like how are you thinking about diversity? So uh, without, um, without making an enormous effort or just because of our sourcing channels and maybe our lens and we know how important it is to the largest institutions who will follow on with capital, uh, our pipeline is more than, more than 40 out of the 50 are led by diverse team members. Um, and sometimes it's one out of the three on the investment team and sometimes it's three out of three on the you know, 40 investment team. 40 of the 50 mm-hmm. would be considered, <laughs> that is fantastic. And, and interestingly enough, of the managers who manage funds that are greater than a billion, there's only uh, about, I think about 15 of them in the world. So uh, uh, in the private equity industry total, uh, of all the managers of the 300 managers that manage funds over a billion, there's only 15 today. So we hope to really change the landscape in the next few decades. Out of the 300 or so uh, in the US or globally? Globally, uh, the U.S. is very dominant, though, so it's it's easy to. Um, <laughs> it's so easy out to of three hundred globally that manage over one billion, fifteen would be considered diverse. Correct. This is really interesting because I mean, you're at the very beginning of the funnel, mm-hmm. and so it's um, that's really interesting. What, what um, so let's go back into more like how do you choose the managers? Yes. So we're really looking for teams that can scale. Some anchor investors are, are looking for niche and that those t- tend to work with um, smaller wealth management platforms that just really love that uh, niche, niche strategies. We're looking yeah. to, uh, to build, uh, our team is equipped. We've sort of built, brought together eight principals and four advisory board members, each with, I mean, many have more experience than I do. And, um, uh, and really the, it's a purpose-built team that can support a manager through our underwriting, during under, and then post um, through the value add. So we are looking teams that are bringing together, uh, likely have worked together, have a strong history of a track record of deal making uh, that goes back a number of decades, and and uh, and and proof point that they've uh, participated, but also led deals from start to finish, uh, and that those those. Um, those criteria are, are really our first stop talking to a team. Uh, of course, a repeatable process and, and proof point that um, they can repeat the success of the past. And so as we build this bridge, we're looking for, of course, uh, there's always it, classic diligence, whether you're looking at fund one or fund 10 is people and process and performance. But we, we add a special unique lens uh, for looking at fund ones, especially at this early stage, uh, before they've had the first close, which called it's called a foundational assessment of the firm, and it think it think, thinks about things like is there shared ownership? Will this team stick together? Is there um, a common mission and understanding? Um, who's capitalizing the firm? Are are, are they uh, putting enough um, of GP, GP commitment capital into the first fund? Things that are foundational decisions of creating these managers, and are they? Um, are they putting in good operation, operational procedures from day one? They don't have to have everything in place to, to transact with us, but we build a three-year plan uh, for the future. Uh, so we'll put in place over those three years, things like an ESG policy. They don't have to have it day one, but we will be there to guide them and help them in areas where they would need help or like help. And so with 
our uh, operating partner team, we help to also support their transactions because one of the things that fund ones typically um, slow down on is their ex execution pacing of deals uh, because there's a lot of distractions when you're setting up. And so that is that is uh, that is the valley of death if you if you slow down your execution pacing for fund one because fund two uh, really is raised uh, on based on strong realizations in fund one. So to get to realizations, you have to have you have to initiate. So it's a, it's a whole a set of dominoes that we've seen this this pattern and, and uh, again and again. Uh, and so we're hoping to make sure we um, yeah. we uh, we help support that process and our what capital. Is ESG policy a requirement for you to invest in a fund? No, not at all. We, but, but we, and we're, 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 sometimes it's easier to watch the process for a while and, and then find areas where there are more risks or um, opportunities for them to be advocates than, um, uh, than we first could, can see initially. So it's actually good to live with your ESG policy for a little while, okay. your ESG lens. Uh, and uh, and really get it right, make it authentic. You know, yeah. really many of the largest institutional investors are asking, yes, it's great to write a policy, but is this being uh, in, incorporated in your um, uh, review, pol you know, your review and compensation of your team? <laughs> so to that exact point, um, well, uh, another firm, Anagenesis, uh, with Melanie Brensinger, uh, we were we're actually going to record an episode on this, and she was saying like we now have community impact as part of your performance review, and so the first time they did it, like everyone on the team literally got like a zero, and then the <laughs> was, right, well, exactly because you're saying like high performers <laughs> when they see a zero on something they want to go to a ten. Yeah, so it's interesting. It it, it is, it, you know, we don't have to have it in you know, in the foundational documents and this highly institutionalized things, you, you take quick action and, you know, ESG is like, what are you going to do today to help somebody out? And then build on top of that and it becomes firm policy. But it was just fascinating to hear her talk about, you know, they didn't have that in their performance reviews and everyone got like a zero when they finally did it, including her. She's like, oh man, we, we all have to do something. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, there's so much work to be done in, in, that, in those areas. And we're all learning how to how to be better, um, how to be less biased, how to how to really think about the risks and returns, longevity. I mean, we've all seen you know climate and healthcare risks over the last you know few years, and uh, how do we make sure our businesses are sustainable through all of these um, all of these uh, both cultural and uh, environmental challenges? So we're working uh, we're working hard at. at um, uh, with the managers, especially as I mean, early on in a life, life of a fund, you're make, you're doing um, a lot of work on vendor selection, right? You're choosing your your auditor, you're choosing, and it is really important to start thinking about diversity at that stage as well. Are you are you making sure you have a diverse candidate uh, pool in the mix? Are you thinking about? Are you asking those vendors about their um, policies? And so it's interesting. The CFA Institute did some great work around. Uh, thinking about diversity uh, and inclusion in your team, so it's um, it's we've we've had a lot of great resources available to us that I don't think was available in the last generation. That's why I'm very excited about us being able to uh, set sail new strategies that uh, you know are classic strategies. I mean, healthcare, industrial, consumer, technology, you know, strategies that, uh, but 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 make sure they're flowing through with best practices and, and getting launched with, with um, that stable foundation.
Yeah. What are, what are typical GP commitments? Like what is the industry benchmark now on what percentage that they need to contribute? And has that changed over the past five and 10 years? So uh, I think there has to be alignment. The, the goal of GP contributions alignment, the traditional is 2%. Uh, and but if you know a manager is going to contribute two percent, but uh, finance it, most of it uh, with availability of you know Silicon Valley Bank or Grasshopper Bank or one of the um, the providers, uh, maybe you'd like to uh, make you know lower that a little bit and and ask for other terms as well. So that we actually have a strong specialty in uh, getting through an initial LPA and, and side letter and thinking about very logical terms for that team's. Uh, you know, individual wealth levels. Uh, and it's interesting in the industry has traditionally <laughs> been a, uh, forming a new emerging uh, private equity firm has been a wealth screen versus a talent screen because you have to last four years without a salary, uh, do some deals in the warehouse and contribute some capital to those. And then by the way, congratulations, you've just raised a $250 million fund. Where's your, you know, $5 million GP commitment. And so it's this, you know, who, uh, who's, who's saved, you know, $25 million, which teams have saved $25 million in the bank um, who can afford to do this. And in some way that's an indication of success. Um, on the other hand, it does, it does limit um, uh, certain teams from, or, or scare certain teams off from, from launching when if they had a strategic partner and, and we're one of many options uh, as an anchor investor, that uh, they, they could have a more assured path to that revenue starting so that, um, you know, bankruptcy won't appear before first close of fund one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the entrepreneurial struggle is real, whether you're doing a, a small tech startup where you're raising a $250 million fund. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, and I think that's a really good point about the wealth screen versus the talent screen and, and why anchor investing is um, needs to be institutionalized um, to see multiple levels deep to really find talent and and allowing that talent to flourish. Um, but and that kind of makes me think of the topic of small buyouts, which is you know in the in the grand scheme of things, why do pensions LP and other types of LPs, you know, need to focus on smaller buyout strategies. You know, are, are, do they outperform? Are they better? Or what's the big picture here? Yeah, it's interesting. In my travels, I've noticed a couple of different types of investor groups, and some that are so large that smaller funds are just barely on their radar, and they're uneconomical because they have, you know, they feel like they need to use a fund of funds manager. Others, some insurance companies, they absolutely um, focus on small buyout strategies and they realize the incredible value equation for and, and higher growth possibilities of a small buyout. And just to give the, the numbers around that, uh, so if you think of a $250 million uh, fund that typically writes equity checks between 10 and, and 30 million, either as a, a buyout or a growth, a growth equity investor, as a minority, you know, control or minority stake in a in a uh, you know a small com industrial company, there are very few equity checks at that industrial company. Uh, often family-owned, founder founder-run businesses, um, uh, you know, there, there are just not that many sources of capital for those that size of business. And it's sort of in the it's a tweener, right? It's, it's not a it's not a new startup 
venture business, but it's it's just a solid business, possibly with 10, 15% growth, and even more if the with with the help of a sector specialist buyout team can come in and bring that knowledge and and capital equation together and help that team professionalize and explore new markets. And ultimately small buyout is is a market that's you know focusing on the US middle market is a market that's still trading often uh, less than 10 times earnings, but has growth at double that of the S&P 500. And so it's this uh, market of, you know, the middle market is over 200,000 companies uh, in the U- in US alone. And uh, and they often have very small market share. So you just start with a lower base of market share and there's just incredible levers to grow, um, both through uh, partnerships with small buyout and growth equity managers, but also just on the company organically. And so it's interesting because it's really the old fashioned way to invest and, um, uh, you know, with less leverage straight into the company equity in interest in companies that are already profitable and just making them more successful. And the fun you're focusing on small buyouts, small buyouts focus on these tweener companies that are profitable, that are growing and that are kind of like the backbone of the U S. And so it's really, a, a focus on, you know, the lower middle market and making sure that every part of this has the capital to do what it needs. Absolutely. And, uh, and even the banking institutions aren't really equipped to provide loans on a consistent basis to many of these companies. Uh, if you have uh, a solid asset, an asset base in your company, they can be more, uh, banking relationships a little bit easier, but that equity check that comes with a team of experts in your sector uh, with prior experience in other companies is, is, is um, invaluable. How have you thought about putting together your team? I mean, you're doing your entrepreneurial venture. <laughs> you're, you're back in entrepreneurs, but how have you thought about the mm-hmm. team that you've constructed? Like how have you known the team, et cetera? What's our foundational? Yeah, what's your story? <laughs> ourselves on our foundational assessment. So we, of course, used the recipe book on ourselves. Uh, we brought together eight principles and uh, four executives and four operating partners. Uh, but three of the operating partners are also owners of the business. So we shared ownership across seven and uh, we uh, share carry across all 12 and uh, we're building something uh, to last uh, for many, many decades. The, um, we've had um, great partnerships. So ultimately the team started as a base of, of, of us that knew each other in the 90s. Uh, six out of eight of us knew each other then. And uh, three of us worked together at Bankers Trust and uh, two or other uh, specialists in the industry. Uh, our operating partners, uh, Wayne Nemeth, who uh, was at Sprout Group uh, in, in growth equity and late stage venture um, in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, Christine Kwok, who was at Goldman and Shorenstein in real estate and real assets um, and credit over those, over those years. And they joined our investment committee. Uh, David and I are the executives on the investment committee. Um, and David, um, actually, he uh, uh, was one of the founders of Brookfield a team that spun out of Bankers Trust um, and ultimately sold the firm to uh, Morgan Stanley. So he's been through the, the startup, right through to selling your company, your asset manager to a larger shop. So he's in value at understanding the, the mindset of the, of the entrepreneurs. And uh, so we've uh, uh, built the team. We've uh, been so fortunate to have Aaron Shippey as our chief operating officer 
She comes with 20 years of experience at Royal Bank of Canada, and she was on the other side of the table from Christine Egan uh, and Vera and me uh, over the last few decades because her platform of operational uh, and, and uh, portfolio at, at Royal Bank of Canada supported some of the clients that we had at Decagon. Um, and uh, it was uh, a very nice collaborative relationship. So it's great to have the team back together. Um, I, had, I had left Decagon to join ER Common uh, and I, I left uh, Vera and uh, Katsura uh, Kikuzawa in charge of Decagon. They did a, a great job continuing the client relationships, but then uh, we turned Decagon into, we uh, finished the relationship with external investors and, um, and, and clients and, and is now solely um, dedicated to operating just at cost services uh, to help uh, the portfolio of steward companies. So, so how long has the team known each other? Like the, the core team? <laughs> Uh, 94. So, <laughs> all right. Well, we won't do the math on that. <laughs> um, well, I guess kind of my, my, my last and, uh, favorite question is, you know, what is your why for being an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mentioned a little bit before, but I, if I have a bias, um, it's about smart and remarkable people. And, at the same time, I, I actually couldn't believe when, when this sort of idea started incubating and there was the help of some very, uh, really helpful um, uh, members of the Private Equity Women's Network, uh, PE Win, uh, were super helpful in helping me think through. And I'm not, I wasn't sure when we've had the idea that I would be the one leading it. I, I thought I would commit, you know, introduce this idea and someone else would, you know, one of the large private equity shops would, would take it on. But uh, as it came, became clear, it became clear that there was a gap in the capital markets and especially uh, one that, you know, is so important to the United States and its uh, leadership in asset management uh, that we need to continue to be leaders. And, you know, yes, it's been a dominant, private equity has been a dominant industry uh, for U.S. growth and capital markets, but it's becoming increasingly concentrated. So new, and it, it definitely, uh, we definitely need to find support for new entrants and get that capital to those important middle-sized businesses that um, are, uh, you know, some of the largest employers in the, in the country um, and, and when, when, when seen together. And so I just, uh, this, um, <laughs> but I love every day. I, I have, I feel like I have the best job in the world. I get to meet super smart people at the moment where they're at a high conviction time. They say, I'm about to leave my job. I'm going to leave security and I'm going to change the, change the channel. And we're going to brand, I mean, sometimes we talk to, many times we talk to teams and they don't have even picked the name yet. This has been awesome. We have a shared love of working with emerging managers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the marketing and branding side and the video That's side. Right. <laughs> you provide, you help provide money to them. Um, no, but I, I, I love working with emerging managers or, and I, I think it's because so much of my career, especially in the past five years, has been starting something. Mm-hmm. And that stage of a business is so much fun, even though it is equally challenging because you're figuring it out. Like, what should we call the name of our new industrial focused bio firm? I don't know. Let's look outside. What's the name of that river? Um, or like, <laughs> who's doing, who's doing IT? I don't know how to even turn on my computer. You could do it. Like all these things, like when, when managers leave their previous firms that have everything, 
you know, from doing the finances to the IT and everything. I think it's just fun to be uh, sharing that journey with them. And that's why, that's why I love working with emerging managers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's fun to, uh, you know, to, to look at a, a blank canvas and kind of be a very, very, very small part of, of, of that. No, you've been a big part, Jordan. You've been a great support. Private, I know the Private Equity Women's Network has been fantastically supportive of, of you and, and all your work for them. So thank you. Well, well PUN is, I mean, uh, you know, they were a, uh, we started working with them in 2020 and it, it was important for us to do that because of my wife, Jing, who's now full-time and co-founder of 51 Labs. You know, she was just going through a rough time in her career. And that's one of the reasons why I started doing so much of my content on investorsandoperators.com focused on women to say like, hey, here's, here's an example. Here are different examples of content that I've shot. Like, listen to their story. You know, hopefully that provides you some inspiration. Um, I think she was just stuck in a rut and needed to get out of it. Um, so like discussions like the one we're having are, you know, very meaningful. And I just feel very lucky that, you know, my day-to-day job is to have fun, interesting conversations with people like you. This is awesome. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Jordan. Take care.